The information presented in this program is not intended as legal, health, or nutritional advice. All topics are provided for informational purposes only and are not necessarily endorsed. Neither Light On nor its host accepts responsibility for any statements, views, or opinions presented in this episode. All rights reserved. Daniel Reutis with me today, um, back on the show. We've been sharing a lot of uh, research and, and things over the last couple years, and and you're honestly one of my favorites, man. I love uh, all the stuff that you that you put out there, and you're really you're fascinating because you you have um, a talent for finding like these really uh, antique studies, if you will. <laughs> They're really like old, really cool old stuff. I'm I'm really into that stuff. So. Um, and recently you've been putting out a lot of stuff about vitamins. And so I wanted to talk to you about, about that because I have, you know, my understanding of vitamins was, uh, you know, like everybody else's, uh, you would take these supplements when, you know, maybe when you were sick or just in, in general to kind of stay healthy. And I never, I never thought twice about it. So I wanted to hear your, uh, your perspective on vitamins and what you've been finding through your research on them. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, and, you know, this is coming from a close to 15 year qualified nutritionist. So I have yes. a master's degree qualification in human nutrition. Um, and I also lecture at a university as a senior lecturer in human nutrition uh so i think i have some expertise in this matter for whatever that's worth and the more i learn about nutrition i just realize that i know absolutely nothing but yeah i've been looking into the whole vitamin thing and what i've found is quite crazy <laughs> i i'm not sure that vitamins exist in the way that we've been told that they exist um so where do I start with all this is probably probably yeah. the question because it's such a big topic. Um, there's a, have you ever heard of a thing called the food matrix? Uh, it or, sounds familiar. Yeah. So there's a thing called the food matrix, and there's also a thing called food synergy. They're they're both the same thing essentially, and what that means is. Synergy essentially is that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So if you had 10 individual little components and you added them all together individually, um, they wouldn't equate to the whole sum of those parts as a whole unit, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's synergy, that all these, all these components somehow work together in a very complex mechanism or manner so that they have added effects that you don't get when each of those individual things are separated into their um, individual component. So food works this way. Okay. And we don't really understand how or why. And when I was doing my postgraduate degree, the lecturers were talking about this, this food synergy and this food matrix. 
that's so complicated, we will never understand it. So from, if we think about this, like from a perspective of drugs, they make aspirin. They take the white willow bark from the willow tree and they extract one chemical from that, which is acetyl salicylic acid, which is aspirin. Mm-hmm. And they put it into a drug and they give it to you for pain relief. Hmm. But when you take that isolated substance, there's effects that you get. There's lots of direct effects and side effects. But you don't get that effect when you have just the willow bark. And we use that in, in herbal medicine, the willow bark. You don't get those side effects because there are other components in that bark that help with this, the metabolism, the absorption, the utilization of that chemical substance. Interesting. Okay. So um, that's sort of pharmaceutical medicine. Uh, they take one substance, extract it from the plant, and they use it as a drug. From a nutritional medicine perspective, um, the food is the whole substance. But they've done a similar kind of thing where they've taken like an orange and they pull out just the vitamin C Mm -hmm. and they put it into a capsule and give it to people. They go, oh, Mm -hmm. this is just, this is just natural. This is, this is fine. This is a vitamin. This is good for me. Yet if you did it with a herb, that'd actually be classified as a drug. Mm -hmm. Um, And herbs and plants are the same thing, right? They're not any different to one another. So what we're actually getting here is a form of drug therapy under the guise of nutrition. Wow. Okay. Nutrition only really comes from food. Does that make sense? Um, it's a very complicated topic yeah. and I'm just trying to simplify it down as much as I can. Right. So by, by isolating these one things, uh, these one, like one ingredient out of something, um, they're getting a more, maybe a more, or di- at least a different effect than you would with the, with the whole thing, with all the ingredients together, right? Yes. And maybe um, more potent. It, it may be, but it may be less potent. It may be less mm. effective. It may have side effects. Yeah. It may be doing things in our body that if you took vitamin C by itself in a supplement, it works in the body completely differently than it does if you eat an orange. Right. Now, the really crazy thing that a lot of people don't get. Maybe I'll ask you the question. Your bottle of say like vitamin C or B vitamins or something. Maybe you're taking a multivitamin. Where do you think the vitamins come from? (laughs) That's a good question. I mean, I never really thought about it. Um, One thing that blew my mind is when I finally looked at the, uh, I looked at vitamin D3 and I saw the main ingredient was cold calciferol. And then I, you know, if you web search cold calciferol rat poison, <laughs> you will find that it is the main ingredient they use to kill rats. So I was like, well, fuck, I'm not taking that anymore. <laughs> yeah. That, so that was mind blowing to me. And so I haven't really looked at anything else, but I've, you know, I'm not taking any more supplements. <laughs> Yeah, the whole vitamin D thing, we can get into that because it's a yeah. good topic. Um, 
so many people would be excused for thinking that my vitamin C tablet that I'm taking, they've got a whole bunch of oranges or a whole bunch of strawberries or a whole bunch of blueberries or whatever. And some really smart people in a lab somewhere have worked out a process where they can take the orange and just take out the vitamin C and they yeah. put it in a tablet and there it is. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the, the, would be my best guess without knowing, you know, the specifics on that procedure. Yeah. Um, vitamins, the vitamins in your supplements that you're taking, they've never seen a food before. They're synthetic. Right. They're made in a lab. So the way in which like vitamin C, for example, they manufacture that from um, genetically modified dextrose taken from corn. So they take the dextrose out of corn and then they take it through a, about, I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen chemical processes where they're adding in heavy metals all sorts of weird chemicals. Sometimes they use formaldehyde and tin and coal tar and all this really crazy stuff, adding in all these substances to the dextrose, um, adding in heat, precipitating it off, evaporating things off, creating these chemical reactions in a test tube to get a substance which they say is chemically identical to vitamin C. And yeah. then they put that into your pill or powder or capsule and you take that and we call it vitamin C. But the vitamin C that you get in a supplement is completely different to the vitamin C that you get in food. And people aren't really aware of that. Yeah, that's, um, it's kind of terrifying. And I, yeah, I mean, I've just been telling people to, to try and get everything from, from food. That makes the most sense to me. Cause they yeah. don't know what they're doing in labs. So when they're telling people, you know, that they see these benefits, you know, I mean, you hear with like, Oh, pregnancy a lot, right? Oh, if you take this multivitamin or, or whatever during your pregnancy, you can avoid getting, you know, these complications. And I mean, what are these, are they really seeing benefits with any of these things or is it all just kind of skewed? Like, you know, like the stuff we see with vaccines and, and all the rest. I think these vitamins are working like drugs. So okay. when you take a drug and you get an effect, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that it's curing the problem. And this is what we see. And, and certainly what I've seen in, you know, close to well, getting on close to 14 years of clinical practice. Now um, mm -hmm. we see people taking supplements. They feel better when they're taking it, but as soon as they stop, the problem comes back. So it's not addressing the underlying cause of the problem. It's actually just masking the symptoms. I see. Now, when we look at things like vitamin C, for example, um, <clears throat> I've been looking really hard into this because I don't actually think vitamins exist in the way that we've been told that they exist. First viruses, now vitamins yeah <laughs> <laughs> i can't take it man <laughs> i know it's it, and it's a bit of a head scratcher for me too okay. i don't really i i don't understand this yet and i don't think anyone really does here's the issues that i have with the whole vitamin thing 
we'll, we'll stay on the track of vitamin C, right? Because we're already talking about it. And most people know vitamin C. How did they ever discover that there was a substance called vitamin C? There were men on ships who fell ill with scurvy. And the doctors in the Navy were trying to work out what it was caused by. They thought it was a contagious virus. Um, you know, they thought it was a, a thing that could be passed between sailor to sailor until they eventually worked out that it was a vitamin deficiency, a substance, something in limes or lemons that when the sailors ate, their symptoms disappeared quite quickly. So they started doing experiments where they were taking lemons and limes and trying to identify the thing in the lemon or the lime that cured scurvy. Mm -hmm. And what they did, when you go back and look at the original papers of when they discovered vitamin C and how they first isolated it, it's kind of similar to what's being done in virology. They never had the thing in the first place to know what they were looking for. What they did was they took a orange or a lemon or a lime and they started tinkering with it. They started adding stuff in. <laughs> wow. Okay. So they started adding in heavy metals and uh, formaldehyde and uh, all this crazy stuff, right? And they started doing like these crazy chemical reactions and each step along the way, they gave these substances to the sailors after they'd added in like half a dozen different things to it and added some heat or whatever else and precipitated and, and created these reactions in, in this test tube. Mm -hmm. And then they gave the substance to the sailor and they kept repeating this until they got a substance which took their scurvy away. And they said, ah, that must be the thing that's in the orange that also reverses the scurvy. Mm. But nowhere along the way did they ever control for those methods of adding things into the orange solution. They didn't control each step along the way to say, is this changing the end outcome? They never did that once. So they've basically said, well, when we do step one through to 10 with an orange, we add in all this stuff and do these crazy reactions. We end up with an end product that reverses the symptoms of scurvy. Therefore, that's vitamin C. That's the thing that's in the orange. And we're going to start to now synthesize this chemical artificially, put it into tablets, and people will take it and think it's the natural substance that they're getting from an orange. That's so bizarre. And some of that may be like formaldehyde and, and all, of the, all of those additives. Yeah, man, they use some crazy stuff. And it's like, how do you know that the formaldehyde didn't affect your end product? How do you know that the end product that you've got that you say is vitamin C is the same thing as in the orange? You never controlled for that. those 10 steps. You never showed that each step along the way wasn't affecting the end product. And they say, well, we can do... Um, gas chromatography and we can see that the chemical structure of the substance that we have from our chemical addition experiments um, is the same chemical structure as what is found in the orange. 
So the issue that I have with that, sorry, am I, I hope I'm not losing you here. No, 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 no. Of, okay, cool. <laughs> no. It's really complicated and I'm, I'm trying yeah. my hardest to simplify it down. No, you're good. So the issue that I have with this is they say, well, they look chemically identical. We, we can do this gas chromatography and it sort of gives a, a chart, a, a graph, and it, and it spikes where you get a certain chemical when it goes along there's another chemical and go and and they say well this is how we work out the chemical structure of vitamin c our test tubes got this substance and orange has got this substance they look the same on on this gas chromatography um, analysis therefore they're the same thing if i had two fridges two pictures of fridges side by side and they looked identical or um, two cars side by side, identical looking cars. Mm -hmm. And I asked you from the pictures, tell me which car is diesel. Tell me which one's the six cylinder. Tell me the one that's got the turbo. Tell me the one that's got the additional airbags. Tell me the one that runs um, on a battery is, is um, a hybrid or an electric. You couldn't do it just by looking at the outside of the car. Right. Or if I said, what's inside the fridge? <laughs> if you've got two identical pictures of the same fridge, you don't know what's in that fridge. You've got to open the door. Same thing with the car. You've got to look under the bonnet and see what the car's built out of, right? Like, if, yeah. if, Is it a six-cylinder? Is it a turbo? Is it a four-cylinder? Whatever. Is it a manual? Is it an automatic? Um, when we start looking at vitamins and minerals and things with other analytical methods that aren't just this gas chromatography, we start to see massive differences in the uh, qualities and the characteristics of these vitamins. Um, and you may have seen a post I did a while ago on vitamin C and they actually had... Um, synthetic vitamin c next to natural yes. vitamin c i was just going to ask you about that yeah that picture was kind of amazing because they looked completely different right yeah because the stuff that they make in a lab is not the same as what you get in a vitamin and here's the really crazy thing back when they were looking into what the substance was in food that cured scurvy when they gave lemons or limes or oranges or whatever to people with scurvy, in 100% of cases, the scurvy went away. But when they did the experiments with the ascorbic acid, which is the thing that they're isolating in these crazy laboratory experiments, mm -hmm. um, from what I can tell, the scurvy only went away in 60 to 70% of the cases. It didn't cure it in a hundred percent of the cases. So mm. that already tells me that there's something completely different to what they're claiming is vitamin C um, in a synthetic form and what's in food. It's completely different. Um, there was something else I was going to say there. Sorry. I've, I've lost my train of thought. No worries. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I lost my train of thought too. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to process this. Um, 
so yeah so definitely there was a like a diminished effect it was not as as great uh, an effect when they used their lab you know their lab creation uh rather than than the real thing here's the sorry i I do remember what i was going to say patrick here's the other really interesting thing is that they tell us that scurvy is caused by a deficiency of vitamin c and that the only way to cure it is by ingesting vitamin c but i've actually found papers from the late 1800s and early 1900s where they were curing scurvy with non-vitamin c substances (laughs) So one example of that is they were using potash, uh, which is essentially like a potassium salt. And they were giving it to people with scurvy and their scurvy was going away. So that flies in the face completely of, of what they say is the cure for scurvy. I mean, potassium and vitamin C are supposedly completely different substances. So how does that actually work? It makes no sense. Um, Hmm. And there were multiple other substances that they were able to cure scurvy with. Uh, Yeah, there's so many inconsistencies here with what we're being told in relation to vitamins, and it definitely makes me scratch my head. But that could also be just there are two things that cure this one thing, right? I mean... Yeah. Scurvy may not be... Scurvy may not be just a vitamin C deficiency. Oh, right. So they're claiming it's just a vitamin C deficiency. Mm nothing else can cause it okay Mm. okay yeah well that is strange then yeah it's very strange yeah so there's there's so much more going on here than than meets the eye and it's very hard to find the answer because i don't think anyone really knows um if Mm. we did understand this you know we'd understand the food matrix um So ascorbic acid is just one part of vitamin C. So vitamin C is actually a complex. It's got all of these other things in it Mm. that help it to be absorbed, assimilated, metabolized, utilized by the body and excreted. Um, Ascorbic acid is like the shell, the outer shell. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at vitamin C, there's all these other components that are inside that outer shell. And they are things like um, P, K, and J factors, which are like um, things like hesperidin, for example, which is like a um, flavonoid, which is found in food. So we know that these things are actually a, a part of vitamin C as, as a whole, but you don't get those things when you take just the ascorbic acid in your supplement. So you're actually, you're under the impression you're getting vitamin C, but you're really not. You're getting the outer shell. It's like um, me buying a, a souped up Mustang or something. And they're saying, oh, this is the V8 version. Hmm. And actually I'm getting the four cylinder version. But I didn't know that because I never looked under the hood. Right. Well, can you tell me anything uh, more specific about the vitamin D3 thing uh, with the, what is it about vitamin D3 that, uh, is that the same sort of thing? Like, you know, because it's killing rats in one, (laughs) in one product and supposedly helping us in another. 
Yeah, man, the whole vitamin D thing from my perspective is an absolute sham. Um, so maybe we'll start like kind of how we did with vitamin C. How did we ever discover that there was a thing called vitamin D? And you'll just be blown away by how they deduced that there was this thing called vitamin D. What they did mm -hmm. back in say the early, oh, sorry, late 1800s, early 1900s is there were people suffering with um, blindness and a condition called rickets. And rickets is essentially like a softening of the bones where you are insufficient in a certain vitamin, a vitamin, right? Mm -hmm. um, and your bones become soft and they start to bow. And you kind of look like you're walking around like one of those Western cowboys, right? With those sort of <laughs> knock-kneed right. bowed legs. So yeah. you get this condition called rickets. What um, doctors noticed was when they gave like uh, cod liver oil to these people who had blindness and rickets, their blindness and rickets went away. So they said, oh, there's something in here that's curing the blindness. And there's also another individual constituent, which is curing the rickets. So they um put... They exposed the cod liver oil to heat and they then gave it again to blind people and people with rickets. But after they'd exposed the cod liver to heat, I, I always get confused. It, it only um, reversed one of those conditions. So it either reversed blindness or it reversed rickets, but not the other one. Okay. So they said, when we expose it to heat, the cod liver oil to heat, it destroys a vitamin in the cod liver oil, and now it doesn't cure rickets anymore. So we're going to call that substance that got destroyed by heat, vitamin D. And the substance that didn't get destroyed by heat, we're going to call that vitamin A. That's mm -hmm. how they came up with it, right? It's just okay. kind of crazy. Wow. Um, and it might be the other way around. It might have been that vitamin A got destroyed by heat. I can't remember. It's been a while since I've looked at the papers. Mm-hmm. So they presupposed that there was this substance in there that cured blindness or, or cured um, rickets. They do that a lot, those guys. Yeah, right? They do. <laughs> and yeah. um, fast forward to, say, when did vitamin D start becoming popular? Early 2000s. Um we started seeing these epidemiological observation studies where scientists and doctors were looking at large groups of people and they were testing their blood and they found that the people who had the lowest levels of disease had the highest levels of vitamin D in their blood. They found the people who had the, the highest levels of disease had the lowest levels of vitamin D. So they made this assumption that, oh, it must be the vitamin D. That's the reason why the people with the higher vitamin D levels had the lowest levels of disease. So therefore, we got to start supplementing people with vitamin D so they get this beneficial effect. 
How would how do they even test for vitamin D? Say, yeah, they do a blood test and search for the chemical. Search for that, that one chemical. The the one chemical, and they okay. would would have done the same sort of thing like they did with vitamin C. It was like do all these crazy experiments um, to isolate just the vitamin D substance. Okay. And then they look for that substance in your blood and they say, well, they're the, they're the same things. So we have these observational epidemiological studies basically saying, well, yeah, people with higher vitamin D levels are healthier. So therefore, let's supplement with it. But then when they've gone and done the actual experiments where they've supplemented people with vitamin D, no one got better. Mm. <laughs> no one's risk of cancer went down. People's rates of depression didn't go down. People's um, cardiovascular risk markers weren't affected. There, There is no beneficial effect associated with taking a vitamin D supplement. So um, what, do you, what do you think that possibly means? If we're seeing people with a higher vitamin D level have a lower rate of disease, but when we're giving the vitamin D, they're not getting the effect. Like, what would that mean to you? Sounds like vitamins are BS uh, as far as far as the supplements, at least. Well, um, yes, I I think there's a, <laughs> probably a lot of truth to that. Yeah, but there's there's more to this story, mm-hmm. and that is the sun exposure that people were getting was having the beneficial effect on the people. So they had lower rates of disease. But when you get exposed to sun, this marker in your blood called vitamin D goes up. Mm -hmm. So it was never the vitamin D in the first place that had the effect. It was the sun exposure. Okay. So we've confused vitamin D for the beneficial effect of the sun. So let me give you an analogy here. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been camping? Yes. And did you ever have a fire when you went camping? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's kind of like the thing you want to do when you go camping. It's the, <laughs> it's the special fun part of camping, right? Right. So it gets cold one night and you start a fire and you huddle around that fire and it keeps you warm. Let's draw an analogy between fire and the sun. So the fire is the sun. Let's pretend for a moment. Um, When you wake up the next morning, there's ash on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. The ash is the leftover bits from the fire. It's the evidence that the fire was there, correct? Mm -hmm. Now, would you agree that the ash on the ground is the evidence that the sun, or sorry, that the fire was there? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So you can't walk up to that pile of ash on the ground and get a little jar, glass jar, and go and take the ash from the ground and put it in that jar. And then later that night, it starts to get cold again. You're like, all right, better start that fire. And you sprinkle ash around the ground, and then you huddle around the pile of ash and you try and stay warm. (laughs) It doesn't work, right? Right. So the ash is the vitamin D. 
The ash is the evidence that the fire was there. The vitamin D is the evidence that you've had exposure to the sun. Nothing more than that. Wow. And there are dozens upon dozens of papers published in the scientific literature which state this. And they state something along the lines of vitamin D is nothing more than a proxy marker for sun exposure. So people are here spending in Australia more than $100 million a year. Australians are spending on vitamin D supplements, yet we live on the sunniest continent on the face of the planet or the plane, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and all you have to do is walk outside and get exposure to the sun. You're getting the actual thing that your body needs because we're light beings, yet people have been conned into being scared of the sun. And now they go, well, because I am i don't want to get skin cancer, I don't want to get burnt, I'll just take the vitamin D instead. And they're under this illusion that the vitamin D is having the same effect when it is nothing of the sort. So, you know, can you just imagine you've got all these people um, just huddling around piles of ash and like, oh, it's so much better. I'm so much warmer now. It's just nonsense. So and people fall for this stuff. It sounds like, yeah, they're just selling a lot of snake oil, basically, and pawning it off as like, you know, what nature can do for us. Um, and it's, it's funny because during, I mean, yeah, the sun has always been healing during the Spanish flu. They had sunshine therapy, right? They would put the, all the sick people out in the sunshine and they would get, they would get a lot better. Mm. So they knew we've always known that the sun was healing. I mean, people worship the sun, you know, through ancient cultures. And um, so I don't think you can bottle what the sun gives you. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah, you can't. And, and the way that they make this vitamin D is they take, they shear sheep, they take the wool from the sheep, and then they um, add in a whole bunch of toxic chemicals, which extracts the lanolin from the sheep's wool. And then they take the lanolin and add in a whole bunch more chemicals and do all this crazy stuff to it to get just the vitamin D. And then they put that vitamin D into a genetically modified soybean carrier oil. They put it into a porcine soft gel capsule and put it into a bottle and then tell you that the sun's going to kill you and that you better buy the vitamin D to make sure you're getting the thing that you're lacking from getting sun exposure. But here's the really crazy thing. There, from what I've been able to um, research, is that there are about three dozen, and I'm sure there's more, but there's about three dozen documented beneficial effects of sun exposure. So even if vitamin, we're talking above and beyond vitamin D here, three dozen effects. So even if vitamin D did have the beneficial effect, which it doesn't, it's the sun. Mm -hmm. um, even if it was helping, you're missing out on 35 other beneficial effects from the sun. You're not getting those effects. Yeah. So it's it's absolute nonsense that people want to take this stuff. And, you know, you mentioned before about vitamin D being a rat poison. Well, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's the active ingredient in rat poison. And here we are taking it hand over fist. And in 
I think 20, uh, I, 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 I'm not completely sure. It may have been 2019 or it may have been late last year, one of the two, but um, they classified vitamin D in Europe. I think it was EPA, E-double-P-A. I'm not sure exactly what that stands for. It's a, it's an agency over in Europe. Uh, which classified vitamin D as an endocrine disrupting substance. So it actually messes up your endocrine system. Jesus. And yeah, we give it to rats and it kills rats, but then we go, well, that's, that's, you know, it's a, it's a very large amount of vitamin D comparatively. So when we take it as a human, it's just a small bit, you know, a small bit of poison is good for you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah they love they love to say oh like oh it's in such a small quantity that it, it can't hurt you <laughs> but yeah, but if you're taking that small quantity every day for years yeah. um yeah it's gonna do some damage whilst being deficient of the sun um and having this unhealthy fear of it killing you and, and causing cancer yeah um living in fear of the very thing that gives life to every single living thing on this planet <laughs> and I mean, slathering yourself in sunscreen with benzene <laughs> in it <laughs> that's good for you yeah. but not the sun yeah. everything really is inverted it really is if you like if you do the opposite of what they tell you i think you'd probably fare pretty well honestly um and it's amazing like look looking into this stuff man it's like you realize just how they're insidiously trying to kill and sicken people uh from every angle i mean it's not a conspiracy theory it's today i read about um tampons women's tampons containing titanium dioxide is it same thing that was in skittles i believe so same thing that's in sunscreen by the way patrick Okay. Yeah. Benzene and titanium dioxide. I'm sure. (laughs) Jesus. Wow. Yeah. What a combo. I mean, how are we expected to not get sick with all of these things in every part? And that's just a couple different products. I mean, people don't think about their shampoos, their dish soap, their, I mean, the cleaners they're using around their house, um, the makeup that they're slathering on their face. And, and we wonder why people get sick. Mm. <laughs> it's crazy <clears throat> it's really crazy and, you know the other thing um just to sort of maybe um add to the the discussion on vitamins is that people are under this impression that vitamins are manufactured by a vitamin company <laughs> and the vitamin company really cares about you and they really care about your health um Actually, that's not true. Vitamins are made by a, up to about half a dozen pharmaceutical companies around the world. Oh, so there's about six companies that make this stuff in a lab synthetically. And then they have like these big 44-gallon drums of vitamin C or vitamin D. And then a vitamin company goes to them and says, hey, can we buy some vitamin C from you? Like, sure, how many 44 gallon drums do you want? Like, oh, we'll take six. So they send out six 44 gallon drums to the vitamin company. And then the vitamin company puts their label on the outside of the bottle, right? And sells mm-hmm. it as a natural supplement. 
Yet these things are all being made by pharmaceutical companies. So they're on one hand, like making the drugs, which are, you know, one aspect of um, medicine. And yet on the other hand, they're also making the vitamin, but people are under this assumption that, oh, the vitamins are good for me. I better stay away from those sucky pharmaceutical drugs. It's coming from the same the same people are giving you both of the things. <laughs> yeah, I call it big pharma light, really, the supplement industry. <laughs> it really is big pharma light. Um yeah. and but it took it took me a long time to to realize that too. Uh because I mean we were so ingrained with this this information, you know, they they programmed us. Yeah, man. And um, you know, it, it goes so much deeper than this. I don't know how much, how deep you want to go into it, but oh, um... the deepest, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, take me all um, the way. There's, there's a thing called fetal programming. I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard about this concept before. Hmm. Not sure. So fetal programming is basically the study of what happens to an unborn fetus when it's in the placenta, when it's growing, and how all of the things that the mother is exposed to in its external environment impact the growth of the fetus. So there's an example that I can use. Uh, When a mother is pregnant, let's say she's taking an antidepressant. And we know that antidepressants are bogus now. There's pretty yeah. good evidence to show that. But when you're taking this this artificial drug, the child, the unborn child, is getting this chemical coming in. They're being exposed to it. And their nervous system and their brain is developing under the assumption that when it's brought into the world it's going to be getting exposure to this antidepressant every single day. Maybe it's in the food, food, like the antidepressant chemical is a natural thing in food. So my body is going to develop in such a way that the nervous system now functions optimally when it's being exposed to antidepressant chemicals. It's like a dependency. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like if you were, if your mother was taking heroin while you were pregnant and the baby comes out addicted to heroin, Right. Um, except it's a step further than that, I think. And if you look at the um, fetal programming papers, they do sort of tend towards agreeing with this perspective is that the um, the neurochemistry of the body now becomes um, almost dependent on being exposed to that chemical. If you take it away, the brain doesn't work as properly anymore. And you have a much higher risk of neurocognitive mm. disease. As mm. So when you're born, you're not getting the antidepressant. So as you age, your risk of all these neurocognitive diseases goes up because the brain's almost kind of like starving in a way because right. it was developed. It, it developed um, around that need. Right? Around that need. Right. Yeah. So it's wow. not getting the thing. I think there's a similar thing potentially happening with synthetic vitamins. So every woman who's pregnant, they're like, oh, do you better take your vitamins every day? Otherwise you're going to be deficient. 
So women are popping hand over fist, these synthetic vitamins, which are found nowhere in nature. And is it possible that the little baby is developing all of its biochemical pathways based on the fact that it's going to be getting exposed to these synthetic forms of vitamins when it's born, they eat the food, but they still end up with disease and deficiency type syndromes. And we say, Oh, that's because the food's deficient. You better supplement. So they take the supplement and they get better, but it's because the baby's chemistry was developed based on getting right. the synthetic vitamins. Can you see where I'm going with that? Yeah. That's, that's wild, man. <laughs> yeah. It is wild. Yeah. It is wild. And I'm not saying that this is proven hundred percent fact beyond any doubt, mm -hmm. but I, this is my current train of thought and I may be wrong and I'm happy to be recanted. I'm happy to recant that um, if someone can prove me wrong, but it, it kind of makes sense when you look at it from that fetal programming perspective. Um, and then there's also all sorts of other crazy stuff where <clears throat> Uh, like folic acid, for example, um, you know how they say, oh, women better take folic acid to stop ab abnormal growth of the fetus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To stop neural tube defects, you better get your folic acid. Mm -hmm. um, so folic acid is a synthetic form of folate. Folic acid is found nowhere in nature. It does not exist. The only place it exists is in a laboratory at a pharmaceutical company somewhere. And when I was going through my degrees in nutrition, I was always told that folate, which comes from food, which is the natural form, it's vitamin B9. Mm -hmm. It's found in like grains and nuts and seeds and leafy green vegetables and fruits and all these kinds of things. Folate and folic acid, I was taught, are exactly the same thing. They're chemically identical. They behave in the body the exact same way. There is no difference. So it doesn't matter if you don't get enough in your diet. Just take your pregnancy multi. You'll get enough folic acid and you're all good. I've found some studies where they've shown that if you have a high level of folic acid in your blood when you're pregnant, um, the risk of giving birth to an autistic child doubles. What I also found is that if you have a high level of synthetic vitamin B12 in your blood as a pregnant woman, your risk of giving birth to an autistic child triples. Remember how I was talking a little bit about that synergy thing before? Yeah. How the the the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. If a pregnant woman has high levels of folic acid and B12 in their blood whilst they're pregnant, the rate uh, the risk of giving birth to an autistic child increases by 17.6 times. Wow. It's insane. And no one knows about this. No one's talking about it. And women are just popping these tablets hand over fist because they're scared 
that they won't be getting enough vitamins from their diet. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I've been talking for a while here, but I'll just finish one last point. Um, what happens with our food supply is they process the heck out of a lot of foods that we eat. And when you process food, the vitamins basically get stripped out and destroyed. So they re-add them back in. They say it's food fortification. Mm. So they fortify our food with folic acid. Oh, Lord. One bowl of cereal contains about 400 micrograms of folic acid, which is about three quarters of your daily requirement of folate. So what happens if a pregnant woman has two bowls of cereal? Now she's getting more than she needs every day. And then what happens if she goes and has some um, bread and some pasta and um, like she uses corn flour to do some cooking that night? That's all fortified with folic acid as well. So now she's getting two, three, 400% more than she needs. And then on top of that, her doctors probably said, hey, um, you should probably take a pregnancy multi just to make sure you're not getting deficient or deficient vitamin deficiencies. So you're also getting an additional up to a 1,000 micrograms of folic acid. And what they've shown is that in 1998, uh, sorry, 1988, the amount of folic acid in people's blood was about 12 nanomoles per liter. Six years later, in 1994, people had three times that amount of folic acid in their blood, close to about 36 nanomoles per liter. And what they found was in 1988, about 7% of the population had what they would classify as high levels of folic acid in their blood. By 1994, so just six years later, nearly 50% of the population had high levels of folic acid in their blood. So we're all, or not all of us, but a lot of us are walking around with potentially abnormally high levels of this synthetic vitamin coursing through our veins. It's really quite concerning when you think about it. Yeah, I used to eat a shit ton of cereal, man. Like when I was a kid up until, I mean, well into adulthood. I I mean, it's a wonder I'm not autistic. <laughs> <At this point. laughs> I think maybe I am. I don't know. But look, I'm not saying that um, folic acid causes it. I'm saying that there's an association there. This is right. And there may indeed be other contributing factors to this. And there are many things that I can think of that probably also contribute to um, autism. Of course. But it is very interesting. And and there are animal experiments where they've given them high doses of folic acid and it's caused autistic-like symptoms in animals um, and wow. neurocognitive impairment. And um, it, it messes up with their genetic profile and all this sort of crazy stuff. So we because fol folate is involved in um, DNA methylation. It, it basically helps to create our, our genetic material. Yeah. So it's really damn important. And um, we're getting this synthetic form and folic acid is just one form. 
right? If you eat a green bean, there's actually four different forms of folate in that green bean and they're all natural and your body needs all four of those forms to um, create your DNA and maintain your DNA properly. So if you're just getting folic acid, <clears throat> that ain't cutting the mustard as far as I'm concerned. Right. So people really need to reevaluate whether or not taking these synthetic vitamins in high doses in isolation mm. is really actually beneficial for their health or potentially um, detrimental to their health. And that's not a decision that I can make for them. They have to go and do their own research. But I do find a lot of this stuff very peculiar. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can tell you that I don't trust anything coming out of that industry at this point in my life. And so I've, you know, thrown out all my supplements. Not that I was a big supplement person to begin with, but when I was sick, you know, I, I would take vitamin C, vitamin D, all that stuff, um, thinking it would help. But it's just, you know, I think the point here is that, you know, we're we're not really eating the way that we're intended to eat. And we've given away our responsibility to all these these corporate uh, interests who tell us that they're they're keeping us healthy in the same way that that nature would, but they they have no intention or or maybe not even the ability. Mm. Um, so that's I mean that that's one of my big realizations in in all of this. Yeah, Mother Nature's got it right. And, yeah. you know, if you, th maybe there's a creator, maybe there's not, but let's assume there is a creator for a moment. That creator was like, well, I've got a human being here and I need to fuel it somehow. I need to <laughs> fuel the, the human body. So um, like, let's just assume that there are these things called vitamins. They're like, all right, what if we just give the vitamins like this we just give it an isolation and we just leave little vitamin trees around one tree's got <laughs> like just the vitamin c capsule one tree's got just the vitamin b and they eat it and they do the the creator did the experiment it's like oh that didn't work back to the drawing board tries the next thing didn't work tries the next thing didn't work and through this process of creating this reality um the way that we that the creator worked out that we had to get the nutrition that we need is by eating an orange or by eating a strawberry or by eating a green bean or by eating a yeah. wheat grain, right? That is the way that you get it your nutrition. You can't a lot get more it sense any other me. way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everything is, I mean, you don't have to, I don't think you have to believe in, uh, you know, uh, God or whatever to know that there's an intelligent design to everything. I mean, I personally believe that there's a, that there is a creator, um, because, because everything is so intelligently designed. Um, but yeah, it all functions on a, on a system. Everything it has a working part to it. It all fits together perfectly. Yeah. The, the, the vitamin industry thinks they know better than nature and they don't, they, right. they do not know better than nature. Now I'm not saying that there aren't instances where someone might benefit from a vitamin like mm -hmm. let's say someone is um really really sick with scurvy and they physically can't eat a strawberry well to save their life maybe we give them some intravenous vitamin c 
And it yeah. just builds them up just enough to get them back on the straight and narrow so that they can start eating a better diet. Yeah. You know, that might be a great instance of, of using that type of um, nutritional therapy, but, but, you know, even that word nutritional therapy, these, this whole field of vitamins is not nutrition. Nutrition is food. When you start using vitamins, this is called orthomolecular medicine. (laughs) This is um, akin to drug therapy. So we have to make that distinction. People are, are confused. They think that this vitamin, these vitamins um, are a part of nutrition when they're not. They're a completely separate field. And it, it basically is a form of drug therapy. And, and we can use these substances for um, certain instances where people get really sick and they might need to be you know, boosted up in a certain level or a certain area of their deficient diet. But isn't it a shame that we have that people have to get there in the first place? Yeah, you know they get. And so like you sick. said, that sorry, that could just be masking their symptoms, though, right? Like you said. And I think that's probably what's going on a lot of the time, because I've found that uh, in clinical practice, once people stop taking their supplements, their condition comes back very quickly. Mm. Wow. Um, you know, people say, oh, I swear by vitamin D because when I take it, my arthritis gets better. Well, when you actually look at what vitamin D is, it's a steroid hormone. It's a secosteroid. I think the way that it's actually working is like a cortisone injection, except you're mm-hmm. taking it as a pill. So it's working as a hormonal anti-inflammatory, like a drug, which wow. essentially it is. And it stops because the inflammation is the healing process. So it basically stops the healing process and the inflammation goes away. The damage is still there in in my hand. I've still got the arthritis. But when I was taking my anti-inflammatory drug, which we call vitamin D, I think, oh, well, the the vitamin D is making me better. When in fact, it was just masking the symptoms to begin with. Incredible. Yeah, man, it is. People people don't realize this stuff. And as far as I'm concerned, food is the only way that you can get your nutrition. It yes. really is. I think that makes more sense. But it, yeah, you know, again, it's like that quick fix, take a magic pill type of mentality that, that we've been ingrained with. So um, I think that makes it appealing to people. Um, and there's also, there's been a big push with this too. Sorry to interrupt you, Patrick. Mm-hmm there's been a big push with this whole vitamin thing. Now I used to work for a farm. I used to work for the um, largest pharmaceutical company in the Southern hemisphere. When I um, soon after I graduated, they had a pharmaceutical division and they had a vitamin division and I worked in the vitamin division. And I remember attending one of their meetings. This is back in like 2011 or 12 or something. And in one of their um, big meetings, they were saying um, by 2020, the money that we make from vitamin sales is going to far exceed the money that we make from drug sales. So there's huge amounts of money in this. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's a classic example of like a massive pharmaceutical company making these vitamins, which 
they're in every single pharmacy and, and um, like grocery store here in Australia. Like if mm-hmm. I said the name of what that product was, people would know it. Um, it. But they're making more money from the vitamins and from the drugs. So there's definitely um, a desire to want to make people take these things. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is very clever marketing campaigns pushed upon the unsuspecting general public where they're under the illusion that these things are actually good for them. But in reality, it may be very detrimental to your health. Um, And an example of that is, uh, sorry, would you, would you like me to give an example of how yeah, these things absolutely. can be detrimental? Sure. Um, so a, a, a lot of women have iron deficiency anemia because they have heavy menstrual bleeding and they lose blood and they become iron deficient. So they think that the way to address that iron deficiency is by taking a supplement. Now, what I've found is that when you take an iron supplement, it causes oxidative stress and damage to your body. And when it's combined with another vitamin, vitamin C, if you take both of those things together, there's a reaction that happens in your gut that causes damage to the lining of your gut it causes inflammation it can cause ulceration and it can even lead potentially to cancer of the gastrointestinal tract when you take iron and vitamin c together in a supplement Mm. and what's crazy is they say vitamin c helps iron absorption so you want to take them together so in every single vitamin supplement yeah. In every single iron supplement, I should say, they always put vitamin C together with it. Clever. Yeah, man. It's it's really wild. And people say, oh, well, then I shouldn't eat um an orange with some meat because I'm going to get iron and vitamin C together and it's going to cause issues. Well, uh, Mother Nature's worked this out for us. There are chemicals in the meat and there's chemicals in the orange that stop those negative processes from happening. Doesn't occur from food. Only occurs when you take these supplements. Pretty wild stuff. Yeah. Okay, so moving on from uh, vitamins, I uh, definitely wanted to get to um, the the meat versus, um, you know, vegan diet debate is pretty huge. Uh, Gets very contentious, gets very heated. I get a lot of blowback from the vegans. Um, they're yeah, they're quite vicious. <laughs> so you being a nutritionist, I thought maybe you could uh, impart some wisdom on this. Um, what is what's your opinion on on that? I've always uh, eaten a lot of meat. I do eat vegetables as well. I you know I love them both. Um, I've never had a problem you know with the amount of uh, meat that I eat. Um, what is uh, now, what does the science say, I guess? Yeah, it's a it's a difficult question to answer. And I, I don't really know um, 
based on what the science says because there's science that you could use to um, suggest one thing or the other. Right. The way that I answer this question is I look at what humanity's done for the last 500,000 years or however long you think we've been on this plane for, right? What have we traditionally done as people living in a natural environment? What did we eat? How did we survive? Were there any examples of tribes, native tribes around the world surviving purely off a plant-based diet? And the answer that I would give is none. Um, There might be like an obscure tribe somewhere that did it, but the overwhelming majority, and I would, I would say that all native tribes since the dawn of time have consumed plants and animals as a part of their diet. Um, so that's how I kind of answer that question. And I think, you know, what were humans meant to eat? Uh, well, if you went and found a guy, a native tribes person walking through Papua New Guinea or the Amazon or wherever, and you said, hey, what's good to eat? He's going to go, you see that berry there? You can eat that one. See that caterpillar there? That's good. See that beetle? That's all right. Um, that tree over there, you stay away from that one. Mm-hmm. They knew what you could eat. They knew what didn't kill you. Um, and... That was essentially how they worked out what their diet was going to be. If it tasted all right and it gave you some sustenance and it didn't kill you, then they'd eat it. And that's why they ate all these crazy wacky things, right? Like spiders and whatever else. So yeah, that's how I sort of come to the conclusion as to what is it that we should be eating. And people then also say, well, um, precisely what should we eat? Like, is there an ideal or optimal diet? And I think the answer is no. There isn't an ideal diet. Um, the way, let, let me give you an example here. So I find examples sometimes work better to explain complicated points. Um, I'm a lecturer at a university and one of my students once came up to me and said, oh, Dan, I'm so sick and I don't know what to do. And it's been a few years now where I've got these really crazy gut problems and my body is just falling apart and I have no energy and it's hard to concentrate, blah, blah, blah. And she'd moved from Thailand a few years before, maybe five years before, prior, I should say. And I said to her, well, when you moved from Thailand to Australia, what did you eat? Did you change your diet? Did you um, continue to eat a traditional Thai type diet? She goes, no, 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 no. I eat Australian food now. And I said, well, when did you start getting sick? Oh, pretty soon after I moved to Australia. (laughs) And she wasn't eating a bad diet. Like if you looked at it, you'd go, actually, this is pretty good. But it wasn't a traditional Thai diet. Her body her what she is made of the essence of thousands of years of thai people her lineage 
is optimized. Her, her biochemistry, the way that her body works is optimized to survive off Thai cooking and Thai food and, and those foods native to her country. Yet she's not getting that anymore. Even though she's eating what we would consider a healthy diet, she gets sick. Mm. So the answer to the question is, eat the way your ancestors ate. Work out where in the world you came from. Look at what they eat or what they ate, how they ate, how they grew their food, how they prepared it. Um, how did they eat it? Did they eat it alone in their bedroom in front of a computer? Or did they eat it with their friends and family and they were happy and they, um, cooking was an event? Like, Look at all of that traditional stuff and that's how you come to the conclusion as to what your diet should be. Now, there is no vegan who can do that. <laughs> no vegan can go, yeah, my ancestors for the last 10,000 years just <laughs> ate beans and spinach. Like right. it, it, it doesn't, it, it never happened. It never existed. This vegan thing has only really come to fruition in what the last few decades. I mean, there wasn't, I don't know if there would be many vegans back in like 1920. Yeah, I doubt it. I doubt it. So I don't know. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I've always thought that it was, it, it's different for different people. And, you know, I grew up in a, a European household. My family's from Romania. You know, we eat a lot of meat and potatoes type of stuff, like a lot of like Italian type of stuff. Um, and I mean, if I eat a salad, man, I'm hungry, like 10 minutes later, I, I mean, I can't, I, I cannot sustain myself on, on that type of diet. It just does not work for me. And, uh, and I've tried, you know, like I've been on bouts where like w when I believed in, in that, I would, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to eat more salads or, or what have you. And it just, no, I can't do it. My, like my body craves meat. It craves that type of food. Um, and I think, I think if people kind of paid attention and listened to their to their own bodies, they would kind of figure it out, you know. But yeah. what I see with the vegan thing in general is um, a lot of people really wasting away on that diet. Um, I don't think, I don't think people in general can really sustain themselves on only, you know, fruits and vegetables. I, I mean. And I can pick them out of a crowd now. Like I'll meet, so I met somebody a, a few weeks ago and they're just very thin, like very gaunt. And I'm like, are you a vegan? And they're like, yeah. How'd you know? Yeah, I'm like, you oh, know? just a wild <laughs> guess. Like they're all really like em emaciated. I mean, of course, like there's, you know, there's that one bodybuilder or something like who tries extra hard. But for the most part, I mean, they're very they're not looking great. I mean, and I'm not saying that to insult anybody, um, but it just doesn't seem sustainable. You know, I love animals too, but I not enough to starve to death. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there's so many points there, Patrick, that you've brought up. I mean, yeah. my sister was a vegan for a, many years and she did it for ethical reasons. And, yeah. you know, I, I, have some seriously fundamental issues with how we are 
um, rearing animals for the consumption of food. I think there's some really unethical bullshit going on that needs yeah, to change. Sure. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't grow and rear animals sustainably and ethically. So my sister did that for many years, uh, was a vegan and became unwell. And we had discussions about, you know, what can we do to make sure that her diet is optimized? And she ate very well. She wasn't um, like I went shopping with her once with some of her friends and they're all vegan. Um, and when they went to the shop, they weren't buying whole foods and preparing meals themselves. They were buying packet foods, but, um, my sister would buy whole foods and make stuff herself because we grew up in a family where food was very important and we all learned how to cook and prepare meals. And we put a lot of emphasis and appreciation onto that, but yeah, all of her friends all ate the rubbish and she cooked all the whole foods and whatever, mm -hmm. um, but still became unwell. And at a point, maybe five, six years into it, had to go back to eating animal products because she was becoming sick. And once she started reintroducing those animal products back into her diet, her health started to improve. Yeah. Um, the other thing about the whole like ethical side of vegan, like being a vegan is more ethical because I'm not hurting animals. We just had that discussion around like, well, what is it that we should eat? We look at what our ancestors did. Um, are, are we like, would a vegan say that an Eskimo was a horrible, unethical human being or that a native indigenous person to Australia was an unethical, um, horrible human who was um, treating animals terribly and killing animals unnecessarily. They probably or like, would. Probably, yeah. Right? <laughs> um, or the people in Papua New Guinea or Samoa or any of these places. I mean, uh, they all hunted and gathered, all of them. Yeah. And all of those people, all of those tribes were far more inextricably linked and immersed with and had this connection and appreciation and understanding with nature far more than any of us today could have far more than any of us could have today yet they still hunted animals yeah mm -hmm. far more connected to nature a far deeper understanding about mother earth and how it works um yet they still hunted animals so for me that whole ethical thing um isn't really it's it's a non-issue because i just look at what humanity has always done it was never an issue before so why is it a problem now we yeah. can do this ethically there, there are ethical ways where we can give animals a wonderful life and um then it, it's it people think we use animals right and I think in those big factory farms, yes, we do. Yeah. But if we have like a sustainable um, regenerative agricultural practice or farm, um, it's not one or the other. It's not like, oh, I just grow the plants 
and the plants can survive just by themselves on their own. They consume less water, like all this sort of stuff, right? <laughs> um, it's a cycle. It, it, this is the circle of life. So the farmer um, has a cow and the cow produces milk for his family. And he might milk a few liters out of the cow every day, takes a few, you know two liters for his family, plenty left over for the little baby calf. The cow mows his lawn. The cow fertilizes the soil, puts the nutrients in there, which the plants require to be healthy for the plants to protect themselves because without that manure, they're going to be unhealthy and they're going to get eaten and destroyed by insects um, and return to the soil. The farmer protects the cow. It gives it a safe haven. It protects it from the wolves, right? Um, and they say, oh, but, but the cows have a higher water consumption and all this sort of stuff and they emit more greenhouse gas and all this nonsense. Um, the water that the plant needs and the water that the cow needs are not separate. They are the same. They are one another because the water that the cow gets, the cow produces the things that the plant needs to survive. And then the water that the plant uses is also by very virtue, the water that the cow needs because the cow eats the plant for nutrition so it's it's a whole thing it's not separate i don't know if i've explained that very well yeah absolutely and we to forget this yeah it goes back to exactly what we were saying everything is you know everything works together um but just to piggyback on what you said before too like you know there's this assumption that we uh that we are for big factory farms just because we eat meat no, we're not. I those are completely unethical. I don't think anybody likes the way animals are treated um in the, you know, the sort of main parts of the industry. Um so that issue is a separate thing to be rectified, right? We're on we're on board with that. Um mm. but there are ethical farms um where animals are treated, you know, they're treated amazingly well. And, and these animals, like if they were out in the wild, would be torn apart by other animals. I mean, if you've ever seen animals being hunted by other animals, it's not pretty. It's not, you know, or would vegans call that unethical? You know, <laughs> it's not. That's just the way that life works. There's always beings that hunt the lower beings and, you know, to survive. That's the circle of life, as you said. Um, so that that part of the the argument needs to go away that that we're somehow you know responsible for these big uh, horrible uh industries because uh, i don't think anybody likes those but yeah on the ethical side um these animals get a far better life than they would out you know out out in the wild i think yeah 100% and also patrick if we didn't live the way that we do if we didn't live in these, like, I live in a concrete jungle. Um, this is yeah. not where I live, by the way. I just put that there. I live in reason. the concrete jungle. Damn. You live in the concrete yeah. jungle. You do. Um, you know, the if one we that didn't dreams are made of. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, there's a whole conversation around how toxic it is living in a concrete jungle. But if we didn't live in a concrete jungle and we were living in nature, those animals would be hunting us for food. So, I mean, is that unethical? How dare they? Right? Bastards. They're just trying to survive. Yeah. Mother nature, I mean, living in nature is freaking tough, man. You got to do everything you can to survive. It is survival of the fittest. And if you don't cut it, you're gone. Yeah. So, and people say, oh, it's, you know, that's, that's, um, looking at things from like this, uh, good and bad, you know, or right and wrong. They are just human constructs. They are things that we have invented. Uh, they, good and bad does not exist right there is no such thing as right and wrong um there are obviously morals and ethics and things morals are inherent i believe yeah yeah and and you know that it's just a Mm. thing inside you that when something you do something wrong you feel it if you've got a conscience yeah right it's just a feeling so you go oh well i probably shouldn't do that next time because it really sucked and it made me feel bad yeah but we hold on to those emotions and we like repeat we repeatedly go over those experiences in our head and we go oh my god it was such a terrible thing oh like if my dog acted that way if he was holding on to like oh last week i sniffed the dog's butt and the dog (laughs) growled at me and now i'm depressed forevermore because i felt really bad when the dog growled at me my dog would be a freaking nutcase man yeah but the dog lives in the moment he goes, oh, I got growled at. I'm going to just go and do something else now and just forgets about it and moves on with his life. He doesn't see good and bad. He just lives. He just lives life and experiences things in the moment. But we don't do that as humans. And we uh, we sort of um, catastrophize things and create these scenarios and situations in our head, which don't really happen in nature. Like, th- does the bird think it's wrong to go and um pluck a ladybug off the tree after it's just given birth to its young like it just does it man it's it's just the way it's the circle of life yeah and you know it's fine people will have different opinions on that um but you know and and i'll be the first to admit man like i don't want to be the one to like have to kill the the cow or whatever i i i wouldn't want to be the guy killing the animal uh, I would do it if I was starving. <laughs> I absolutely yeah. would. Um, but I don't like, you know, I don't necessarily see it as like a pleasurable thing. It's just a, it's a necessity. And I've always like, I've respected uh, vegans and vegetarians um, because they're willing to sacrifice, you know, uh, sort you know, their, their diet for, how they feel about animals like that that's a totally um understandable uh aspect of it for me and that's Mm. fine i'm like i want people to know i am in no way telling anybody uh how to feel or what to believe or even what to eat i never tell anybody what goes in their body that's my rule where i've lost respect for a lot of vegans is when they uh they turn it into dogma and they start telling me what to eat, what goes in my body, right? And for me, that's no different than telling me to take vaccines or, you know, to, you know, big pharma pushing whatever on me. 
that's my body. That's my choice. So you, you all can feel free to do whatever you like to do. What, what is best for you and what you find moral, totally fine. Um, I just don't like people telling me what to do. That's it. And, you know, so I, I always had that respect until they kind of came at me, you know, <laughs> like a lot. And I'm not saying all of them are the same way, but, um, you know, there are, there are some vicious, <laughs> some vicious people in the, in the vegan, uh, it's, it's become a little culty. I mean, if I'm honest, you know, but that's Look, how I feel um, about it. I think none of this would be an issue if we lived in harmony with nature, but because we live in disharmony with nature and we're completely disconnected from where our food comes from, um, this problem has arisen where we're mass farming animals. Like I have um, killed animals for food before. Uh, I've worked on a farm where we used to hunt rabbits and we you know, shot roos and things like that were pests that were destroying crops and we ate the meat or we gave the meat to the dogs. Um, I enjoy going fishing, but it's never a pleasurable experience taking another creature's life. Like I feel bad stepping on an ant. I mean, it's not something that I go about. I don't kill spiders. If I see one in the corner of my room, I'll take it outside or whatever. Like it's not a, I don't take pleasure in having to take an animal's life. Um, but when you live in harmony with nature and it's a necessity, then it becomes a part of who you are and it becomes a part of um, survival. And you then become more appreciative and you become more mindful and you be you develop this appreciation and relationship with nature and you have far more respect for the environment that you're living in and you want to take care of it and you want to do right by um, creatures. And if you do have to take a creature's life for your survival so that we can, uh, because I believe that we're actually put here as sort of um, groundskeepers. Humans are here to look after the earth, not destroy it. Um, if I have to take an animal's life and it has to give its life so that I can survive to continue to be the groundskeeper here, um, then so be it, right? I I think um, we've totally confused food uh, with what it's really designed for and what it's there for. I don't think food is meant to be there necessarily first and foremost as a thing for pleasure True. i think first and foremost it's there for us to survive um and to maintain relatively good health but we've confused this we've forgotten about that we we don't um we now no longer have that connection with food we don't see it as a thing that's necess necess necessary for our survival and we just gorge on things with, we're just mindless eaters, yeah. right? And because we've become mindless eaters and because we've lost that connection with mother nature, we now um, give that 
role of taking another animal's life to someone else and we're disconnected from it. We like I guarantee you that if you um told people who eat meat, if you put a knife in their hand and say, go and kill that chicken or go and kill that cow or go and kill that lamb, most people couldn't do it. And that's an issue because they're so disconnected um, that they don't appreciate how and, and what the processes are that are required to get to that point where you actually grow a cow for consumption or where you grow a chicken for consumption. If people really knew what was going on in the food industry, they'd be horrified. But once we put them back into that and it's like we basically spend our life um, rearing animals for survival and we have to grow crops and things for survival. When you spend your life sort of focused around food, then I think all of those um, issues where we're polluting the environment and we're treating animals unethically, they all disappear. So I think the answer to this is for us to get back to living kind of how we did maybe in the 50s or 60s, where you had some land and you were basically self-sufficient. Um, you take care of the land, you take care of the animals, your food's more nutritious, there's less pollution. Like there's so many benefits to doing that. Yet here we are just living in high-rise buildings, um, completely disconnected, completely taking all of this stuff for granted and pointing fingers at other people to fix problems that we are responsible for. That's an excellent point. Yeah, we're certainly not living the way we've been meant, we're meant to. Um, I want to keep you too late, uh, but I did want to cover mold. Uh, yeah, cool. Yeah. Totally different topic, but I would love to jump into some of that. You've been, uh, posting a lot of stuff on mold lately. So what's the deal with mold? What can you teach us about, uh, mold? Because there's a lot of misconceptions there as well, right? Yeah. People say mold causes disease. And um, I can tell you with 100% certainty that there is no scientific evidence to prove that claim. Absolutely none. Um, people, again, are under this false assumption that mold causes illness. Um, we had some floods here in early 2022 in the east coast of Australia. And a lot of people's homes got flooded. And after the floods, they started to get sick. And they see this black moldy stuff growing on their bathroom wall or their kitchen sink or wherever, I don't know, where, wherever it grows. Yeah. And they go, that's the thing that made me sick. And they lay the blame because they can visually see it. Yeah. It's like a bacteria. They say, oh, the bacteria is the cause of the problem because we can see it under the microscope. And in <laughs> fact, no, it's it's there to fix the problem. Same thing with the mold. The mold is not there to cause disease. Mold's role is to decompose organic matter first and foremost. That's what it does in nature. So if a tree falls in a forest, the mold comes along and it starts to help to break that tree down to return the tree back to the soil so that the nutrients can be used by the plants and things. 
Um, exactly the same process happens inside your house, except um, there have there has to be conditions for the mold to grow, and those conditions are for the air to be humid, for there to be a certain temperature, and for there to be a food source. And it just so happens that the food source are the, is the toxic chemicals that the building is made out of. Um, so mold also, in addition to like decomposing and breaking down organic matter, bioremediates and biotransforms toxins. You ever heard of like these poison mushrooms? Yeah. Like you don't eat a poison mushroom because it's going to kill you. <laughs> right. Um, the poison mushroom in and of itself is not toxic. What happens is there may, there may have been like an oil spill, like some oil in a little pocket underneath the earth might've like ruptured. And like, now we've got some oil contaminating the soil, or maybe there was like a landslide and there was some heavy metals in the rock face. And now those heavy metals have been dispersed through the, the soil and they're damaging nature. So how does mother nature clean that mess up? Well, it just so happens that the mold or the fungus or the mushroom that is really good at cleaning up heavy metals is the poison mushroom. Hmm. But the poison mushroom, as I said, isn't poison poisonous in and of itself. It's poisonous when it's eating the toxic heavy metals and converting them to non-toxic substances which can go back into mother nature and be used by other things. Um, would you say an oyster mushroom is toxic? I don't even know what an oyster mushroom oh, is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> is that a thing? What about like a shiitake mushroom or like a... Um, I've never been a mushroom eater, but I've heard oh, of right, shiitake okay. mushrooms. I've right. heard of them. <laughs> There, there's a type of mushroom um, called an oyster mushroom that you can get at your local shopping center and you can put it in your spaghetti or whatever tonight and eat it and you're not going to die. It doesn't, it's not toxic. But what researchers have done um, and environmental scientists have done is worked out that oyster mushrooms are really good at eating toxic oil sludge so if there's an oil spill some tanker somewhere loses a bunch of oil into the ocean and it washes up on the shore they can go and sprinkle the little mycelium of the oyster mushroom there it will grow eat the oil and turn it into a non-toxic substance which can be returned back to mother nature and be utilized amazing if you ate that mushroom whilst it was busy converting that toxic oil sludge into a non-toxic substance you're going to get sick right mm -hmm. makes sense so um does that mean oyster mushrooms are toxic <laughs> no. no they're just they're, they're just serving their function so yeah. that's that's been my understanding of mold as well it's like not the mold in and of itself it's the um sometimes the, it's depending on what they're breaking down right the waste of the mold that is the issue. So people like bacteria 
you know, when they look at bacteria responding to toxicity or what have you, um, you know, uh, they're bl- they're blaming the 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 solution rather than what is actually the problem. Yep, that's right. exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. They're blaming the cleanup crew. Yeah. So people say, well, I got sick. There was mold in my kitchen and I got sick. And then I cleaned up the mold and then I wasn't sick or I moved out of my moldy house and now I'm not sick. So it must have been the mold. Well, there's absolutely no evidence. There's one experiment that's ever been done in humans exposing them to toxic mold. No one got sick. Hmm. What's really going on is... Well, what's really going on? What I think is going on, we have evidence of human randomized controlled placebo trials where people have been exposed to toxic substances found in building material and it causes the symptoms, just so happens, that are identical to mold-related illness. Now, what's really interesting is um, there are more than 300 toxic chemicals found in building material. Mm -hmm. And those toxic substances do leach out over time. But when when the environment becomes damp and humid, um, the building material starts to degrade and it loses its structural integrity. And it's been shown in countless experiments that when these building materials are exposed to a certain level of humidity and um, dampness, that they start to release, they aerosolize, they off-gas these 300 toxic chemicals into the air. Things like formaldehyde and benzene and all this really crazy hectic stuff. Mm. Um like they've shown um, when the humidity increases in a, in a certain area where there's building materials, the levels of formaldehyde in the air go up a thousand percent. Now, what happens when a human inhales formaldehyde at these similar concentrations that are being off-gassed by your building material? Well, they get wheezing and itchy eyes and they get asthma-like symptoms and they get chronic fatigue-like symptoms they get all these things that are identical to what people are claiming is a disease from inhaling toxic mold spores. Um, but they've never once shown that inhaling a toxic mold spore causes issues, even in animals. This has never been done. Um, so yeah, there's so much more to the whole mold thing than just like pointing at the black mold on the wall and saying, that's the cause of my issue. Right. Seems like we do that a lot. Yeah. With a lot of different things. Yeah. And that mold has been shown in many of um, those toxic chemicals to convert like formaldehyde, a toxic substance to a non-toxic organic chemical, a non-toxic organic substance and sends it back into mother nature and mother nature uses it. Can't use formaldehyde. So we're just blaming Mother Nature's cleanup crew as the problem, and it's it's absolute it's it's a war on nature, is what it is, and it's madness. 
Okay. Um, so here's a here's a fun question. Um, there's been uh, a minority section of the health movement or whatever you want to call it who has taken to drinking their own urine. Uh, <laughs> um, also known as urine therapy. I'm not joking. This is real uh, for anyone who's not familiar. Um, and, you know, they claim to that there's some benefit to this. And I mean, people are uh, online very proudly posting videos of themselves drinking their, <laughs> their urine. And, you know, I, it, it's baffling to me. I think that probably there is something else you could probably do that would benefit you rather than drinking your own bodily fluids. But that's just me. Um, what do you think about this this trend? Um, well, I've done it before. Uh, Have you? Like, yeah, yeah. I've tried oh, no. it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I have tried it. Um, okay. It wasn't an easy thing to do. But hey, like I, I try most things because I want to know if it's good or if it's not so good. Uh-huh. Look, I mean, urine therapy has been used for a really long time in places like India where they've consumed their own urine. Um, and there are a number of papers where they've looked into the health effects of consuming urine. I think a lot of people have used it for the treatment of like cancers and, and things like this. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, urine's also used by the pharmaceutical industry. So it's used, it's like the, the, they use horse urine or cow urine or something as the major ingredient in many drugs. Um, many pharmaceutical, uh, many, um, urea you're talking about. Yeah. Urea. Mm -hmm. Um, and that there's also other substances that they use. Okay. Um, they also use it in like beauty, products and dermatological products as well right. um, for, for various reasons. Um, when you look in the literature, they say, oh, there's this potential thing in urine called an anti-cancer substance because there seems to be a lot of people who consume urine and it reverses their cancer. Mm. I mean, two minds about this. Part of me says, is it possible that there are like stem cells and nutrients and uh, like structured water, for example, that we're getting from urine that may have some sort of therapeutic effect? The other part of me says, is it such a disgusting thing to do that and look, I don't think it's disgusting. When I was, I did a urine fast for like 12 days or something, right? It was to drink your own. <laughs> I know. <laughs> 12 days cool. of drinking your own urine, Daniel. And uh, it, it wasn't like the most pleasant thing, but I tried it. Mm. But, um, you know, the, the act of collecting your own urine, getting your mindset in such a way, you're like, oh man, I'm really doing this. All right. And then you do the act of fasting and then drinking your own urine for a period of time. Is it possible that that has such a powerful placebo effect 
that you're able to cure yourself of conditions um, largely by the virtue of drinking that and, and, and that process of collecting and then consuming it. Maybe there's truth in both sides, that it does contain certain uh, substances which can help to heal the body. And maybe it's also a placebo effect. Um, but then I also look at Mother Nature and I go, well, are there any other animals that do this regularly? Uh, and I can't really see any of that happening with any other right. sort of living creature. Um, but there are lots of things that humans do that other animals don't as well, right? Uh, so, yeah, the jury's out for me at the moment on urine therapy. I don't know one way or the other. Um, Here, I mean, here's the thing. Um, let's say there is, um, I mean, it, it is also your an elimination method, right? So you are eliminating toxins. So if I can say, I mean, I could say like, oh, this orange is really good for me. But if it's, if I wrap it in dog shit, then <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you still get the good stuff of the orange, but it's wrapped in dog shit. So, I mean, I feel like that's kind of the case with your, like, even if there's, you know, I'm not even doubting that there might be some good stuff in there, right? Let's say there is. But you're also getting your toxins. You're um, getting anything you consumed again. Like if you're on any medication or supplements, as we talked about, you're reintroducing that into your body, right? So is that really that great for you? Um, if you were doing it incorrectly. So what's so, the correct way? Well, you would be looking to... Um, try and open the channels of elimination first prior to doing a urine fast. Is this like the eight be... second rule thing? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, that. supporting the gut and the liver and your kidneys and, and reducing the amount of toxins you're exposed to and detoxifying before doing some urine therapy. Okay. Um, like if you look at, at the medical term for urine, it's plasma ultra filtrate. So it's basically just your blood plasma concentrated. And in a completely healthy environment where you're not being exposed to toxins or stress or pollution or whatever, your urine would be completely pristine. Um, it's just filtering out the unneeded things in your blood. Maybe there's a little bit too much B1 in your blood, or maybe there's a little bit too much estrogen in your blood or something. So your kidney filters it out and puts it into your urine and then you excrete it. Um, so there's this thought that we can then take the urine and then drink it and you get exposure, re-exposure to those things that your body didn't need you can reabsorb those things and then it takes the potential pressure off other systems to have to then make all those hormones and vitamins and all that sort of other stuff again. Uh, because it's also, you know, it's just coming straight from your body. But yeah, I mean, if you were eating rubbish diet and getting exposed to toxins and smoking cigarettes and taking pharmaceutical drugs and whatever, 
and then drinking that urine, like that would probably not be the best thing to do. Um, but yeah, I, I do look at these sort of ancient uh, Ayurvedic remedies and they utilized urine. There's also mention of urine uh, in ancient texts where they equate it to the fountain of life or the fountain of youth. And I look at that and scratch my head and go, is, is there some truth to this or is it complete misinformation? Um, and, and urine does have some healing effects that we're aware of. Like in Australia, there are blue bottles and like these full on Irukandji jellyfish, jellyfish and, and stinging venomous, poisonous things floating in the ocean. And if you ever get stung, you pee on your foot and it takes the stinging away almost instantly and helps for that injury to be healed. Is um, that true? Have you looked into that? Cause I thought I heard somebody say that it was a myth once. Um, no, they recommend it. Like the, yeah. the surf life-saving association. I think they say vinegar is the best. Like it's good to have a liter of vinegar there, but peeing <laughs> on your foot, uh, if you get stung can, help with that process so like on one hand there are these beneficial effects that we see from urine uh from animals being used in like pharmaceutical drugs and uh beauty therapy um, and cosmetics uh and topically urine has been you know shown to have these anti-inflammatory and analgesic and anti-toxic properties. So yeah, I mean, part of me thinks there's a benefit and part of me thinks maybe it's just a placebo effect. It's hard to make a judgment call either way at the moment for me. Yeah. I mean, for me, as long as the price of admission is drinking my own urine, I'm going to pass. <laughs> like, that's, the, that's the thing. It's like, like, okay, if it's an emergency situation, like I can see it, like pee, pee on someone's foot, they got stung. Cool. You got cancer. You want to try something? Go for it. Um, but I mean, maybe what bothers me the most is just like, if you're going to drink your own pee, like keep it to yourself. don't don't post videos about it it's weird it's yeah it's just weird guys i mean we don't we don't need to be doing that yeah (laughs) and and i know that there are like a number of people who um talk about this there's actually a guy who i've been listening to for a number of years called dave murphy have you heard of dave murphy i don't think so you should look him up i'll send you a couple of his videos and um he talks about urine therapy quite a lot and what he has to say is quite compelling. And that was the reason why I originally tried a urine fast. We're talking years ago here, but that I tried this. It's not something that I've recently done. Um, but I just tried it to see if it was beneficial. Mm. And it was largely based on the presentations and things that he's given um, into urine therapy. And I also went through the scientific literature and looked to see whether or not there are any merits to what they're saying in regards to urine therapy. And there does seem to be a thought process that it, it is beneficial. And that was the reason why I tried it. 
Now, it's not something that I recommend for people. Like I've never told anyone, hey, go and drink your own urine for health benefits. <laughs> I think there's probably other things that can be done first. But if yeah. someone was desperate, like I've read reports in the scientific literature of people with like stomach cancer, for example, yeah. and they've consumed urine and the cancers went away. I found a um, scientific paper where a lady had uh, bladder cancer or u- ureter cancer, and they had to do a surgery where they redirected the urine to go through her bowel. Hmm. Um, and when they did she no, they, uh, they redirected the urine into her bowel, and I think she had bowel cancer. Okay. And um, the, when they did that, either the bowel cancer went away or the other cancer went away because the urine was somehow being absorbed through the large intestine, right? As it was entering into the large bowel, it was getting reabsorbed back into the body and her cancer went away. But as soon as they then um, redirected the urine to go back through the normal pathway of elimination through the urethra or the ureter, sorry, urethra, um, the cancer came back in her bowel, mm. right? I, I I know that's a bit of like a shoddy story or an explanation. It's just something that I, this is like probably five or six years ago when I read these papers. Mm-hmm. But I looked at that and went, that's really interesting. Like what's actually going on there? How did, how did that process actually work to um, reverse that person's cancer? And it is a documented case in the literature. So, yeah, as I said, there's one one part of me thinks that, yes, there probably is a beneficial effect. And the other part of me goes, is it purely placebo? That's how I think a lot of things actually probably work is is through the power of our mind. But, yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. I'm sorry I can't give you like a, a definite answer on that one. No, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. But how, how did, did you feel like, how did you feel after 12 days, though? Um, did you have any like really negative like standout negative effects no not at all i felt pretty good like yeah uh i remember waking up feeling super fresh very clear um had lots of energy my memory was really good but i mean that could have been just an effect of fasting because i also have those effects true or similar type effects when i water fast Right. Um, or when I do just a ketogenic diet, I get similar effects. When I start cutting lots of things out of my diet, for whatever reason, I, I start to feel better. So yeah, was it the urine or was it the fact that I was like not consuming much else? It's kind right. of hard to say. Yeah, and that's a good point Like too. If people aren't like eating really clean or fasting then they're going to reintroduce a lot more negative stuff via their urine so yeah you definitely want to be careful of that if you're taking like other drugs and you're smoking and doing all this other stuff there's no point like you're just going to be reintroducing that stuff into your system you're completely right there so yeah it's not something that i have recommended that any of my patients do um and i probably wouldn't recommend it for anyone because i think there's other things that can be done but yeah if there was a serious situation or a family member had like this incurable cancer or whatever 
Sure. And yeah. they exa- exhausted all other potential possibilities. I'd go, right, well, we've got urine therapy. Like, let's give it a go. What have we got to lose? Sure. That makes sense. As an emergency thing, cancer, sure. But I, in the meantime, will not be drinking my <laughs> or recommending it to others. But thank you. That was a great explanation. Um, yeah, man. Thanks for, thanks for coming by. I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, million things I could ask you. Time has, has flown by and I don't want to keep you too long, but, um, yeah, excellent stuff. Thanks. Thanks for your work as always. And, uh, I hope to talk to you again in the future sometime. Thanks, Patrick. It was really nice speaking to you and look forward to talking to you again soon. Absolutely. Cheers, mate.